0: Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your host, Ashley Van Houten. Thank you so much for being here, as always. I say it every time, and I mean it every time. I'm not just blowing smoke to make you feel good. It means a lot to me that you're here and you're listening. Today's episode is with Dr. Andrew Huberman. He is a neuroscientist and a professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine. So pretty smart dude. Um, but don't be afraid. I promise you'll, you'll be able to follow this uh, podcast because I did. And if I did, you can. He studies brain development, brain plasticity, neural regeneration, as well as things like controlling your brain state, tangible ways to manage fear, stress, and anxiety. And his lab also works on a lot of um, research around vision strategies for reversing vision loss uh, and understanding how visual perceptions and autonomic arousal states impact behavioral responses. Okay. So that's a lot. He's doing a lot. Uh, this episode is definitely a note taker. Um, but I promise you if I, if I'm smart enough to follow along with this one, so are you. And what I love about this episode and the work that Dr. Huberman does and that he shares so freely, uh, online and on social media is that so much of it has a, Really direct, immediate, and tangible application for us. Like, it's great to talk to smart people about research. I do this all the time, but so much of it is theoretical. And in this interview, we actually get into actual breath practices, physical practices, and behaviors, and things that he has studied to help individuals immediately reduce acute anxiety. So it's stuff that you can take away and really try in your life. Um, and of course, we talk about things like neurotransmitters and hormones and the roles of things like dopamine and serotonin and our behavior patterns. And we also talk about the physiology behind positivity begets positivity, which is something you guys have heard before and many people think is this woo-woo like secret thing where, oh, just be positive and positivity will find you. Um, but there's real evidence to support this concept, right? Of rewiring your brain for positivity so that you can seek it out and find it and recognize it when it's there and focus on the things that are important rather than dwelling on the crappy stuff that isn't. And look, I think we all deep down know this to be true um because we all know people and maybe we are these people but we all know people who just seem like they have sunshine around them all the time right like they just have a horseshoe up their butt everything's great all the time everything good happens to them and you're like they can't just be luck right and then conversely we all know people who just walk around in a perpetual rain cloud and uh you know again this this isn't a conversation about um mental illness, necessarily. This is just something about the power that we personally have to rewire our brains for positivity, for success, for things that make us happy. And I think it's really empowering to know that if you want to be a miserable person or a happy person, you can make that choice. It's very self-perpetuating in both cases, right? So... All right. So there's a lot happening here. I hope you get something out of it. And uh, if there is something that you hear in this episode that really resonates with you, I'd love to hear about it. Um, You can let me know on social media uh, when I post about the episode. You can email me. My personal email address is in the show notes. So feel free to send your feedback. And of course, you can always leave an Apple podcast review so that other people will see it and know which episodes are especially awesome. So without further ado, here is my interview with the neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to to dive in. So thank you for that. My pleasure. And maybe before I kind of get into any of my questions, um, because I think you do a better job of describing what you do than I would, um, if you could just kind of tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, so I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. So I have a laboratory. I do some teaching. I teach medical students neuroanatomy. I sometimes teach a specialty course here and there. But um, for the time being, gone are the days of teaching big undergraduate lectures. I used to do that kind of thing um, no more. I mostly focus my efforts on research. And so I run a laboratory of anywhere from about 10 to 15 people, depending on who's graduating and taking their degree and heading off into the world. And we work on two main topics. One topic that we're very passionate about is trying to understand how to regenerate nerve cells, neurons after injury, in particular in the visual system, uh, essentially trying to restore vision to the blind and trying to offset vision loss for people that are losing vision. In diseases like glaucoma, retinitis pigmentosa, macular degeneration. These are extremely common, unfortunately, and they are diseases that uh, really hinder people's lives if gone untreated, um, just because we're so dependent on vision. So I have a longstanding interest in vision. And then the other half of my lab, um, we study what really should just be called probably states, states of mind and body. So we do study stress, we study states of fear, we study Um, states of what I call proactive coping. Um, You could call it courage or something, but that's a little bit more psychological, but proactive coping, how to move forward in the face of intense or even mild uh, agitation, Um, and how to apply that to enhance cognitive function, physical function, and just basically what, you know, in the common language people would just call kind of thriving. How do people thrive? So the way the way I think about that aspect of our lives is, you know, people can be kind of flat footed, doing okay. People can be leaning really far forward. So we do some work with like athletes, military, high performers, people are really like trying to their center of mass forward, really driving forward. And then you have your populations where unfortunately people are kind of back on their heels. So chronic anxiety, ptsd these kinds of things and just being flat-footed for those people would be uh, would be a significant win so we focus on all those things and we do that um two main ways we do some work on mice mice are the species of choice for um genetic manipulations you can probe around in the brain ethically of course you know um this all has to be approved by many, many governing bodies, but you can poke around in the brain and try and figure out which brain areas are involved in certain kinds of behaviors generally. Now, of course, mice can't speak, or at least they speak mouse, but they don't speak human. So um, we don't know what they're thinking. Um, And so we also do a lot of work on humans. And for the human work, we do stuff like gene therapy, We use virtual reality. We actually do record directly from the brain of human patients. I have a collaboration with a neurosurgeon named Eddie Chang at UCSF, and he has patients that have electrodes embedded in their brain. So we're actually able to put humans into quite real scenarios using virtual reality and get a really clear sense of what's going on in the brain, what specific brain areas are active, how they feel about that, what's going on in the body. And just to kind of wrap all this in a sort of a bow, you know, our real interest is trying to figure out and develop tools so that the every person can make use of the the science that's going on in our lab and other labs. So we have interest in like vision and respiration, in how f- uh, like motor action and movement translates to shifts in neurochemicals. We could go down any of these rabbit holes that you want, um, and then. You know, I also, my life is also these days a lot about public education. So things like this, things like teaching on Instagram, anytime someone wants to know about neuroscience, it's not, I'm certainly not an expert in all areas, but I've spent 25 years in this business. So if I don't have an answer to a question, typically I know someone who's got an answer and I'll, I have, so I have a good, um, committee of people I can refer to. And so if the conversations about, you know, puberty or about diet and exercise or about brain health and dementia, I'm certainly not the expert in those areas, but I can reach to people with a, with a text or a call and usually get, get some info. So these days I'm kind of spraying neuroscience info as far and wide as I can. And, um, that has woven in with my laboratory mission as well.
0: Okay, I was taking notes while you were talking cause I have lots of questions for you, but it was just coming up that like trying to deal in the face of mild agitation, you're basically describing my life and I think probably a lot of people's lives. Yeah. But but another thing that kind of came up as you were talking about the work you're doing is I'm wondering, has the nature or direction or even the way you're putting out um, the work that you're doing changed since, you know, the COVID stuff and quarantining and people being home and a whole new set of um, fears and anxieties. Has that changed how the, the, the direction that you've been researching or not really? Because I mean, essentially, we're all still dealing with these very kind of universal fears and anxieties.
1: Yeah. So when COVID hit, a couple of things happened. First of all, um, I noticed there was a heightened interest in science. So from the public education perspective i was doing some posts on instagram mostly about um and podcasts and talking to some large groups um we actually uh, myself and some others were talking groups at like harvard some of the leadership at stanford um mostly about stress and stress management not so much about covid i'm not an expert in viruses my lab uses viruses um there were a lot of opportunities and there still are fortunately funded by government to research covid i mean there are tremendous resources being put into this um I opted not to focus on COVID itself. There are people that are far better equipped to, to focus on, on the virology um, and vaccine development. Um, what did happen, however, is we were running a, se- a series of studies on stress in humans, and we were wrapping those up, and we had an interest and some new funding to study the role of respiration, conscious breathing not meditation, but specific patterns of conscious breathing and how they shift physiology and how that those shifts in physiology would control mindsets and stress mitigation, all this stuff. The, the plan was for people to come into the lab like we'd normally do and then run them through some deep testing for hours on end and then send them back out into the world. We decided to pivot. And by we, I mean a, a colleague of mine who's super interesting, a guy, his name is David Spiegel, kind of the world's expert in clinical hypnosis. He's a psychiatrist in our department of psychiatry. He's done really important work in pain management, trauma treatment, um, breast cancer treatment. He's um, just a, a really amazing human in terms of how he um, thinks about the mind and the role of, that hypnosis could play. Anyway, David and I teamed up and we pivoted to doing these studies on respiration remotely. So right now, the first line of recruitment just ended. Um, maybe at the end we can talk about. We're always recruiting subjects now from the outside world, but what we decided to do was to monitor people. We we entered an agreement. A whoop, um, who the Whoop Strap folks are, you know, who make these sleep bands, and they also measure breathing and some other things. Were kind enough to um, donate. Um, I don't have any formal relationship to Whoop, but they they were kind enough to donate. Um, uh, about 125 whoop straps, which are now on people's wrists right now. I was actually looking at the data this morning. Those people are out in the world. Each one of them is in a group where they're doing different types of breathing. So, you know, there's all this talk about breath work, Wim Hof, tumo, uh, box breathing, et cetera. I've, I'm really interested in how those shift the f- people's physiology and then how those shifts in physiology allow them to either better cope or not cope. There's never been a systematic study of all these. So right now people are doing their breathing every day for about five minutes, specific patterns of breathing where their data is constantly getting pinged in. And we may introduce things like remote um, cortisol samples. By Saliva is actually the best way to get cortisol. Fortunately, doing remote blood drips is a little bit trickier, but um, you actually get the free cortisol, which is the, the one you're interested in. Um, and so, yeah, we're running these studies in mass now in the in the population, but without people actually visiting the lab. And so that's a significant shift in the way science is done. All the other work I described, the kind of mouse work, the nitty gritty of recording from patients and things of like that, that's still happening. It's just with a lot of PPE gear, a lot of protective gear, basically. Um, yeah. PPE is just nerd, nerd speak for protective gear. So um, it's happening and i actually think this is going to be a model for research going forward not just for us but for other labs you know it's it's a pain to drive to university to park go in find the lab there is a need for that but there's a lot of great work that can be done remotely and the cool thing is with these remote sensors we we're getting data 24 hours a day 7 days a week there's some really cool sensors that are coming soon that I'll just kind of People's ears up to. There's a group in Illinois that's developed some small sensors that that measure cavitation, so you can get breathing, heart rate, blood flow. You can actually get body position. This gets into some issues of privacy and things like that. But like throughout the day, we can look at people. Not right now in the current study, but we would be able to see whether or not they're lying on their side, whether or not they're upright, what their motor movements are. You track. You can see why the privacy issue might be, become a little bit uh, uh, sensitive. But you can essentially get. Um, the kinds of behavior and physiological analysis that you would get from animals, you're getting that from humans. And they can text and put in reports of I feel low, I feel happy, I feel elated, I feel it's so it's pretty cool. I think this is the future of research, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I I get that people often, their knee-jerk reaction would be like, oh my God, you can see all this, you know all this, that's kind of scary, but at the same time, I mean, one of the biggest issues that seems to be with a lot of studies is when human beings are self-reporting Things like what they're doing, eating, move, how they're moving, whatever. That's there's a massive kind of margin for error there when we're just relying on people to remember or tell the truth, right? Whereas in this situation, right. it, it, we don't have to worry about that anymore. So that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, and you know, it it opens up an interesting point along the lines of like emotions and how to report those. You know, most of the time, I said before, we don't know what animals are feeling, and we certainly don't. We have a sense, but sometimes based on what we think. Most of the time, we don't know what other people are feeling either. And a lot of times, people don't even know what they are feeling. The language for describing feelings is very deprived, whereas the language for describing heart rates is very specific, or breathing cadence, or carbon dioxide-oxygen ratios, or uh, you know, oxygen saturation kinds of measures, and neuronal responses. That's concrete stuff, and it's really interesting to think about correlating that to people's Speech and behavior and you know what they're saying and also how they're saying it. I have a deep interest these days in um, sort of like timbre changes in the voice and how that might relate to different states of mind and stress and um, it is kind of scary to think about of course the people are volunteering for these studies yeah we also it' we pay them and um, and or we supply them with a valuable piece of tech that they can keep and use so it's all voluntary people can opt out at any point. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. And I just think that um, we can learn a lot. Like one of the things, there's a lot of fear nowadays about AI and machine learning and this idea that like robots are going to take over the earth. And I, I'm less concerned about that. What is cool, however, is AI can tell us things that we won't know. The AI is smarter than we are in a lot of ways. So what I mean by that is like, let's say we were to acquire all your data for a month long period. You Maybe you adopted a new breathing practice that for you didn't feel... Like it shifted you that much in the moment or maybe it did AI can spit back to us later like oh it's really interesting I'm making this up of course, but you know Ashley has a, a delayed peak in cortisol when she does her breathing early in the day before a certain circadian time point. if she does it late in the day, she's sleeping deeper like AI can feed all that back to us we can't you know otherwise if we go in with a pre-existing hypothesis which is how science is done and we say oh we predict that this breathing will lead to blank blank and blank the issue is we can miss a lot of the other interesting stuff because we're only lo- we only know what we know ai can li- can start looking for patterns it's this uh, this concept of unsupervised learning it can start looking for patterns and creating patterns that we that we didn't see and so it actually can know you better than we can know you or even you can know you. And that's really, really cool because humans love to correlate. We love to think, oh, you know, I ate, you know, ribs yesterday. There was some sugar in the barbecue sauce. That's my, why my workouts sucked, or I feel miserable today. It's like maybe or maybe that's all just a creation, which is still fine. There's nothing wrong with the subjective interpretation. But when it comes to creating new technologies and things that we can scale out to people, it's really important that we, we have the, you know, those concrete objective measures. You know, I always say science is definitely not the answer to everything in life, but it's nice because it provides these objective definitions so that when someone comes in to a doctor's office and they're like, I'm, I'm not feeling that great, the goal is that you know, for mental health, you'll be able to prescribe five or six things in a very particular way with some high degree of certainty that they're going to shift in the right direction and then be able to monitor them. So I'm very excited about AI um, for those purposes.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I I would agree that probably computers taking over the planet is like the least of our worries right now. Um, We've got enough to worry about, but I think it's also kind of interesting that you have this sort of duality going on where we're very, um interested in and learning about sort of the science of our emotions but there's also this other side where we sometimes want to take the emotion completely out in order to understand what's happening in our bodies so it's like trying to balance both of these sides is already making my brain hurt a little bit and we haven't even really gotten into it but with that said i'm just going to try to to parse through it a little bit um so one of the things that and we were talking a little bit about breathing and and you were saying earlier you kind of um made the distinction between breath work and meditation um and i i'm interested in this because i've had such a struggle for years and years trying to incorporate meditation um in a consistent way despite every single successful person I've ever talked to saying they have a meditation practice and every single smart person I've ever talked to saying you gotta do this if you wanna be you know, successful and happy and not stressed out. Um, and one of the things that really helped me when I was learning a little bit about like the Wim Hof method and kind of doing some of these other um, breath work practices was sort of taking some of the Um, emotion-based woo-woo, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but just sort of that side of it out and making it more of a um, pragmatic, practical, Approach to health kind of helped me get my head around it a little bit Um, And so I'd love for you to kind of talk about the work that you're doing in terms of you posted the other day And everybody that's listening has to follow you on Instagram because you post so much good free information on there It's incredible Um, But one of the ones that you you were you post about relatively recently was about breathing to control brain state and also immune function So can you talk a little bit about that part of it for me?
1: sure so um yeah, I've had a interest in meditation for many years, since I was a teen, really. I read John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, started a meditative practice. I got interested in breathing and respiration in like 2015. I heard about Wim, Hoff, of course. I actually brought Wim out to the Bay Area, um, not for my lab. I just literally brought him out of my own dime. I invited him and his whole family and like rented a place for them out here. And we did some talks together to some communities that I thought would be interested um, and my goal was really to understand the protocols. And, you know, and so I talked to Wim and then from that exploration led me to conversations with Brian McKenzie, who's now a close friend also. Um, and, you know, I think they just shifted their their name. I think it's called like Shift State now, but it was, it was Art of Breath. Uh, yeah. So forgive me, Brian, but Shift State, but Brian's easy to find out there. You know, where he was putting more of a um, kind of a physiological um, slant on things really like measuring um breath duration. It was less about field and and more about trying to identify breathing patterns that were could be tailored to the individual, which I think is uh something really important. and then Laird and Gabby, you know Gabby Reese, Laird Hamilton, so you know i I went on this what I call a listening tour, so every once in a while I'll do this. I'll get interested in something, I'll go on a listening tour, so that includes YouTube. I try and find the people. I dig into the science that might relate to that. And then I like to build experiments. And so, um, you know, my issue with the field of breath work is the following. It's an amazing group of people, really, if you think about it, real pioneers. My issue is that, A, the protocols are hard to access. You can listen to a lot of information out there. But, it, you know, sort of, we get these general themes. Like, like I, I like McEwen's work also. I like it all. But it's, you know, it's, okay, so we're supposed to breathe through our nose more than our mouth most of the time okay. Slower breathing, probably better. Um, But then it sort of starts to get a little obscure. And so what I decided to do was kind of put the the science of stress and stress mitigation on the question of what types of respiration are best, like what should we be doing? So one thing that has been important to my lab is to not necessarily just develop tools that you can use as a practice, offline away from life, but because of some of the consulting work I do and because most people in general are um, in a world where they need to mitigate stress in real time, like developing these real-time tools. So I went into the literature. It turns out that there are studies dating back to the 30s, identifying a particular pattern of breathing that people do spontaneously, which are these double inhale, long exhales, which are called physiological sighs. We do them periodically throughout sleep. Now there's very good data um, showing that these double inhales followed by a long exhale are also what spontaneously occur in claustrophobia. So as people get stressed, they don't realize they're doing this, but they start entering this pattern of And so animals do this, dogs do this to relax, look at your dog right before it goes down for a nap. Basically, it boils down to there have now been identified a set of 200 neurons, very small number of neurons that are in the brainstem, which control physiological size. So to me, this was really exciting. It's like Mother Nature installed a set of neurons in all of us and in all animals to calm ourselves. So this isn't breath work. This is like 10,000 years of evolution designed to bring the nervous system from a higher state of activation to a lower state of activation. And the way it works is that double inhale maximally inflates the little sacs in the lungs. And that second inhale, it's not just taking a deep breath, that second inhale pulls a little bit of extra carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream into those sacs so that when you exhale, you offload more carbon dioxide. So I've been out there on Instagram and elsewhere and we're studying what happens if people do these physiological size consciously And that I consider a real-time tool for calming oneself. So for anyone out there, you're feeling too stressed, try the double inhale followed by exhale. Ideally, inhales through the nose, exhale through the mouth. But if you have a badly deviated septum and it's really an issue, you can do this all through the mouth. The idea here is, you know, we can all breathe involuntarily or voluntarily. But the idea is to have a, a tool that can reset you, bring your level of stress down quickly. You know, I... We can't run off and do breath work when we get triggered. We need things that we can use throughout the day. So um, that's the best tool that I'm aware of based on respiration to quickly calm the nervous system. However, there's a whole other aspect of breath work and applying breathing to impact the body in positive ways, and that has to do with what's called super oxygenated breathing. Now, if you go out for a hard run or you do a hit workout or you're lifting heavy in the gym, maybe with slightly shorter rest periods, you're also going to get this effect, but the effect is you're breathing very deeply and repetitively. So it looks, in a breathwork session, it looks ridiculous, it looks like which is ridiculous, but if I'm out running, like yesterday I did some hill sprints with a weight vest on, that's kind of my typical Sunday workout or something like that, you're breathing like that. When you breathe like that, a couple of things happen. And now I'm referring only to what the peer-reviewed science supports. There are probably other things that happen too, of course. When you breathe that way, there's a signal sent from your nervous system to the organs and cells of your immune system that activate your immune system. But the signal doesn't go directly from the nervous system. It actually goes, nervous system measures the fact that registers that you're breathing fast, says, "Uh uh-oh, stress. It doesn't say, I enjoy hill running, which I do, but it says, stress. Adrenaline is released. Adrenaline activates the organs of the body that liberate killer T cells and other B cells and other cells that go out there and attack bacteria and viruses. Now, why would this be? So what this is really saying is stress improves the function of the immune system. It enhances immune function, allows you to combat viruses better, bacteria better. In fact, the one study of this was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Not one study, but a study there are others that showed that doing a high intensity cadence breathing followed by an injection of E. coli, something you definitely don't want to do at home, which which made subjects, people sick, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, if they did this breathing beforehand, they could mitigate a lot of those effects, negative effects. So that tells you that stress increases the immune system. And we're always told stress depletes the immune system. But if you think about it, if you go, 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 you're working hard, you're supporting somebody else, you're training for something, if you really push it, you might get sick. But usually it's when you stop that you get sick. And the reason for that is the immune system stops getting these signals from the nervous system to stay active, to to deploy these killer cells. So I'm a big fan of people having two tools in their kit, related to respiration. One is the real-time tool of physiological size. You can kind of push back on stress. If you're doing some public speaking or somebody triggers you, or you get a text and you're stuck in traffic, or you're just like at the store and you're breathing through your mask, and you're like, ah. Try those physiological sides, just kind of learn to calm yourself. But having a practice, maybe it's five minutes of intense breathing. So it'd be 25 breaths really intensely. Each inhale, exhale will be one do 25 of those, then exhale and hold your breath for maybe 15, 20 seconds. What you're doing there is you're stepping up the threshold for what you would consider as overwhelming stress. You're getting stronger physiologically and you're deploying your immune system. So when I get a throat tickle or I'm feeling a little like not good, I'll do that pattern of breathing and based on what the data show. So my lab's role now is to try and, you know, I I don't want to, you know, knock on any of the amazing stuff that people are doing out there in the communities of breath work, et cetera, but is really to try and get some data and physiology to support this. And the way I think about everything I do really is kind of a neural circuits approach to health and wellness or a neural circuits approach to stress mitigation. Because when I say neural circuits is if I can identify a practice that maps directly onto a set of neurons in the brain that in both animals and in humans was designed to, to push the body toward a particular state or the mind toward a particular state, I can feel pretty good when I go to sleep at night that I didn't make this up, that Mother Nature made it up, right? And that it was designed for that purpose. And so a lot of this is about stripping away a lot of the, the naming and stripping away a lot of the kind of branding around this, not because I want to, you know, I have nothing to I'm not trying to take away people's livelihoods at all, but like if science is going to play a role in developing new tools, it's going to be by discovering mechanistic phenomena that then we can, we meaning everybody can use to build new tools. So that's the idea.
0: Okay. All right. I really wish I was taking notes. There's a lot going on here. Okay. First, Double inhale, exhale, breath. How many times are we doing this? Like, again, perfect example. I'm in the car. I get an annoying text message. I'm in traffic. It's really hot. I'm stressed out. I can't deal with this right now. How many times am I doing this? Like, if it's one or two times, is that going to make a physiological difference? Or do I, yeah? One, that one
1: to three times. Really? One to three times. Yeah, you'll get back to baseline. I mean, it, there. so one to three times, the heart rate is going to come down last. So one thing to be really cognizant of, people. Sometimes, like, because we have sensors on our heart, we can tell when our heart is beating quickly. A lot of times, people are frustrated that their heart rate doesn't un- come down quickly. You don't want your heart rate to come down quickly. It's a phenomenon called brachycardia. You can pass out. In fact, you know, some some people see blood and they pass out. Hmm. That's actually an overactivation of the calming response. What happens is they see blood, they get super stressed, and then it's like the teeter totter slams to the other side. Hmm. So-called parasympathetic nervous system kicks in the vasovagal response, and they go. Pom. It's like you want to you you want to l- calm yourself in a deliberate way, but you want to do it relatively slowly. Um, so one to three of those breaths should do the job. Now there's a mental aspect to stress, which is pupils dilate. That brings certain things into focus, so you're able to see that text message at that. You know, mother nature is so smart; she sets your focal range directly to the, to the location you are going to get the most information about the thing that you're going to stress to not about the beautiful sun setting in the background not about so everything else becomes annoying you know if there's a kid in the back seat you're like shut up you know whereas normally you wouldn't say that perhaps to your kid um so you do a couple of these physiological breaths maybe just one or two but then it's important i also believe to dilate your vision so it you know, so dialing your vision, it's hard to show on a screen like this, but like I'm looking directly at you. So I can look directly at you through like a narrow cone of attention like this, or what I can do is broaden my cone of attention so I can see the room around me and you. I don't lose any awareness actually. So I'm not moving my eyes. I'm keeping my head more or less stationary and I'm just kind of dilating my gaze. That will allow the stress response to subside even more quickly. Sure. And the cool thing is when you dilate your gaze you actually are processing information about four times faster than when you're in a focused regime and there's a reason for this which is that the neurons that carry that information are much bigger bigger means electricity flows faster this is all based on you know biophysical properties of neurons just like big pipes water goes you know more quickly through those big pipes than little narrow pipes so this is actually the mode of vision that allows you to catch a ball when running it's what allows fighters to, um, you know, sort of like block or slip punches that they're not looking directly at the fist coming at them. And this is what um, in communities that work in high stress, high consequence um, environments, so military first responders, they talk about situational awareness. Situational awareness is that dilated gaze. It's that calm state, you know, and when you interact with people in those communities, what you find is, especially the really um, expert ones, they're they tend to be pretty calm, and yet they're pretty aware. They're not like calm like my bulldog, like checked out a most oblivious. of the time, horizontal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very aware, and it's um, and this is a a quality or an attribute that can be trained up. Mm-hmm. So having that that panoramic vision is great. It's also panoramic vision and optic flow of things moving past you is what um, naturally occurs when you go for a walk or a run or a hike when you look at a horizon. So there are a lot of natural behaviors that, that capture and create this visual state, but you can deliberately do it. So this is the cool thing about respiration, about vision. They, just like muscle movements, they're perfectly fine to work on their own. You don't have to think about your breathing all day to breathe, but you can consciously take control of it. You don't have to think about how you're looking at the world, but you can take control of it. So when stress hits, I would say two inhales followed by an exhale. That should be a reminder to yourself to dilate your gaze a little bit. Doesn't mean look around like this, it just means dilate your gaze, get a little bit of a sense of where you are in the world, right? And then the cognitive switch should allow you to react to what's going on in a much more deliberate way. Now, of course, if you are an immediate threat, under immediate threat, you don't want all that. You want to be full blast, adrenaline in that tunnel because you want to respond and save your life for the life of somebody else. But most of the time, the stress that we're experiencing is not of that um, kind of acute uh, severity and you you're perfectly fine, probably much better off being in a calm state of mind. Um, I always say stress promotes a sense of agitation, tries to get us to react. So you feel uncomfortable with stress because your body wants to move, and you're not moving. It's also why we say things that we shouldn't say when we're stressed. It's the muscles, the nerves, and muscles that control speech are they're just like primed to go. So, and I, you know, I'm guilty of this. You know, it's something I work on. A generally, pretty calm guy, but when I'm in it with certain people, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. It's my stress's fault. It's
0: physiology's ex- fault. Not mine. exactly.
1: <laughs> and, exactly. And there, and then you find yourself reacting and you're like damn it well you were you know you um, me i was too far down that um you know stress scale and so having tools to to do this is essential I i think especially in this day and age not just because of covid but if you look at most bad decisions incarcerations um bad violent acts in any direction between any groups most of the time i mean there's sociopathy and like but most of the time, it's because people fail to regulate their state of mind. Mm-hmm. And so their body just got taken down this path. It's not an excuse for bad behavior, but I think everybody could stand to improve their life quality by learning how to control these states of stress by physiological size, panoramic vision, but also having a practice that will ensure that their, their threshold, their trigger point is much further out then it would be had they not done that practice.
0: Sorry, guys, I'm interrupting my own damn self here to tell you about today's show sponsor. And before you skip through, I got to tell you, this one is offering the biggest discount of any of them at 20% off. So maybe listen to this one. I'll keep it brief. Okay. All right. Bubs Naturals is my only source for collagen and MCT powder. And look, I'm nothing if not consistent with the things that I love, right? Basically, my life is held together by collagen, coffee, chocolate, and organ meats. What else do you need, really? But anyway, Bubs makes the best collagen of all of the kinds that I've tried, which is a lot. It mixes better than basically any other product. Uh, Their MCT powder goes into my coffee every morning and makes it delicious and creamy and full of healthy fats which is great for people who are trying to, I don't know, stick to a lower carb thing, a keto thing. If you're trying to compress your eating window and you want to have something to tide you over in the morning, it's perfect. Um, The company also gives a full 10% of their earnings to a charity that supports military veterans, which is a cause near and dear to my heart. Um... And that's basically unheard of in the industry to give that much money to a philanthropic purpose. But they're basically a company that focused on giving back first before making money, which honestly is very unique today. So they just happen to make really great products. So go to bubsnaturals.com, use the code muscle maven, get some collagen for your gut health and your beauty, get some MCT to support those low carb goals, and you're doing something to help the world and make it a better place at the same time. So com, code muscle maven for 20% off and now back to the show yeah this is so fascinating I feel like the visual vision side of this could be like obviously an entire podcast on its own because um, there's so much kind of going on there but and I also it's funny you talk about the situational awareness thing and and that it can be learned which is a great thing I think that the community I'm in has taught me a lot about that to the point where lack of situational awareness is like literally my biggest pet peeve like I it it drives me nuts mm-hmm. how completely how oblivious some people are. But anyway, that's, again, maybe another entire podcast. But I wanna go back to the discussion around stress being um, a positive thing in terms of building your immune response and your immunity. Um, and there's got to be, I mean, I think it's probably safe to say that most of us want to be able to build our immunity, continue to build our immunity, continue to build a positive reaction to stress that we can manage it better and manage our emotions better and all of those things. But there's got to be like a, a law of diminishing returns with this at some point, right? Because why else then are we talking about this balance between Uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic and we want to be able to come back down and be relaxed and that's where we recover and and rest and get stronger so there's got to be some level where this just constant stress and then just dealing with it isn't gonna be a good thing right
1: yeah so I think uh, a good rule of thumb and here I'm gonna I just want to put a disclaimer I'm gonna I'm gonna include some suggestions about practices that a fitness minded community might consider implementing or anyone might consider implementing some of these have strong scientific support some are areas that i'm speculating a little bit about how to implement that science and i just want to draw a line there because you know my credibility in life has a lot to do with how much i rest things on peer reviewed published data versus emerging science no one even knows what that means <laughs> uh, but people talk about it you know and then things that people can actually do because i think people care about that but so you know we know that now that heart rate variability is good you, throughout the day, you want to have periods of high heart rate and low heart rate. Um, no one can say you want X number of waking hours high heart rate, X number of hours low heart rate, and low and high are this much over your resting heart rate. I mean, that's all going to get worked out over time, in part through the sorts of studies we're doing with those whoop bands and the sleep stuff and the breathing stuff, and other groups are doing that as well. But it's not a fine science yet. But I think it's fair to say, based on your question, that. It's fair to to respond by saying that you want peaks in sympathetic activity. Sympathetic always makes people think it's being sympathetic, but obviously it's sympathetic being the stress response and then periods of parasympathetic activity. And the better that you can toggle back and forth between those, the better off you're going to be in terms of immune function. So, So critical to immune function is a period of deep rest we call sleep every 24 hours not every 36 not every 28 but every 24 hours for some people that's four hours for some people that's eight hours what do we know about sleep just sort of like some bullet points that can that map to immune function that i think don't get discussed enough first of all everybody needs different amounts of sleep But there is evidence that sleeping in 90-minute cycles, not separating those out, but that waking up at the end of a 90-minute cycle is good because you're not sort of midway through a REM or a slow-wave sleep cycle. So in other words, better to sleep six hours than seven hours because that's if you go past six hours, you're going to wake up midway between one of these REM slow-wave cycles. So basically, every 90 minutes, you go through a cycle that includes some slow-wave sleep and some REM. You want to complete one of those cycles and then wake up. So you so like at the beginning of the night, there's a higher percentage of slow age sleep and then more REM toward morning. But for six hours, you're gonna get a one and a half, three, right? Four and a half, six. And so then you if you set an alarm to wake up after six hours, you're generally gonna feel better and function better than if you were to sleep past that six hours and say, Oh, well, I need seven hours and wake up at the seven hour, because you're only 60 minutes through one of those 90-minute cycles. So, yes, you need a lot of sleep. Now, would seven and a half hours be better? Of course, right? Yes, that would be great. But waking up at the end of one of these 90-minute cycles is good. Now, you don't know exactly when you fall asleep, so it's a little tricky, but your body's forgiving. It doesn't have to be exactly 90 minutes. But if I'm not going to get as much sleep as I need, I will definitely make sure my alarm is set so that I'm waking up at the end of one of those 90-minute cycles. Now, in addition to that, I think we know that having a, pad, a practice or some way of calming yourself during the day maybe it's physiological size I'm a big proponent of of this practice yoga nidra which is like lying down and listening to an audio script talked about this a lot so if people have heard me say this before forgive me but guess what the stuff that works still works so it's sort of like you know it's like lifting heavier weights will make you stronger mm-hmm. over time on average that's generally a truth that's not 100 years from now there'll be podcasts where they're still saying that Because it's still true a practice for 10 to 30 minutes a day where you lie down listen to a script we can provide some links to some ones that i particularly like where you focus your attention a little bit but you're generally going into a deep parasympathetic state my lab and other labs have shown other labs have shown i should just say credit them properly the uh replenishment of dopamine stores in the basal ganglia which prepares you for action those are areas of the brain that control motor planning and motor execution um our lab has shown that you can mimic sleep-like states. I fundamentally disagree, although respectfully disagree, with the people that say you can't recover sleep. I think a period of deep rest of 20 minutes or 10 minutes and they day can reset cognitive ability. We've seen that. Um, though Resting with your feet slightly elevated above your head. Brain perfusion is very important. We know there's a beautiful study done in the Stanford Sleep Lab where they would show where people's feet are relative to their head. When you sleep on a plane with your head above your feet, you're not getting as much perfusion of the brain during sleep and clear out of a lot of the things that accumulate that you want out by the time you wake up. So naps and sleep with your feet slightly elevated are going to increase brain perfusion. And so you might be able to get more restful sleep there. All that's going to support immune function. In addition, keeping the room cool, don't eat too close to sleep, not too much caffeine, all that stuff, okay? So sleep is fundamental. But when you then look at the day and you say, well, my whole day was stress. Well, if you're matching that with deep sleep at night, that's probably fine. But if it's like stress spikes throughout the day or, or constant stress throughout the day and then your sleep is fragmented, now you're talking about stress throughout the 24 hour cycle. So I think people need practice to get better at toggling back and forth between these sympathetic, aka stress and parasympathetic, aka relaxed states. So learning to ride that seesaw is really important. One way you could do this that I, I'll just say the kind of little tool I use to do this is I'll finish a set. I like weight training. I've been doing it since I was a teen. For me, that's my preferred form of exercise. I do cardio because I like to run a bit. But if you ask me to... Like, do you want to lift objects or do you want to run? I Nine times out of 10, I'm going to decide to lift objects, just how I'm wired. Probably not alone in that way. Um, you know, I'll, I try and finish each set. So I'm trying to bring maximum focus, maximum intensity to that set. This is very Ben Pakulski-esque. I know he's a common friend of ours. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, and I, I credit him really as like what, you know, Really teaching me and, and many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people now, if not millions, that the amount of attention that you can bring to an activity in that, in that set is kind of a, it's a template for learning how to bring maximum attention to something. Mm-hmm. So I'll do that, and then I'll finish the set with a rep that isn't, doesn't involve moving any weight. My rep is actually a physiological sigh. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to bring maximum focus and and sympathetic tone and activity to the the behavior, and then I'm trying to relax as quickly as possible. Now, if you start to do that throughout your workout, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing your nervous system sawtooth up and down, up and down from these high activation states to low activation states. You might say, well, that sounds really exhausting. But what's cool is it's the opposite. You're not in those few seconds following a set, you're actually recovering your nervous system. So I've seen a number of, and this is kind of back of the envelope measurements now, but you see some interesting effects when you start doing this. One is you're recovering better because your cortisol release is probably not like this. It's probably got little dips in it, right? Because you're naturally invoking that that parasympathetic response. The other thing is that you're training your nervous system. It's not so much about training muscles. You're using weight training as a template or a kind of like an anvil to train your nervous system to toggle back between high stress and low stress very quickly. And what is cool about this is the nervous system doesn't know the difference between lifting weights and a stressful incident from the perspective of of controlling that that, you know, seesaw. Yeah. So, I think that um, you could do this with running too. You could do hit, like you could run hard and then see how quickly you can recover your calm. And I think when you look at high performers, what you start to find is that they do this intuitively. over time, they're learning how to conserve neural energy. And so all of this without going too far down a rabbit hole speaks to this idea of you know noradrenaline and it was is kind of the neurotransmitter equivalent of adrenaline that's effort and strain and push and focus. And the the quit reflex, which is a real thing, is in the brainstem when noradrenaline is too high for too long. And so you can tap into an enormous capacity, not just for exercise and physical effort, but for mental focus, for life events. You can essentially control your ability to lean in and lean out, lean in and lean out in real time so that as you progress through this and then you're learning to control your nervous system and it translates. Mm -hmm. So it translates across domains because the cool thing is mother nature did not design a stress system for the gym and another stress system for when your kid is sick and your life is challenging and another one when you have financial issues, it's one stress system and that was deliberate. And that sometimes feels unfortunate. And you hear about this, oh, you know, this was only designed for us running from tigers. It's like, no, this was designed for us to evolve through whatever we were confronting. And getting this skill of learning to toggle between high activation states and low activation states, I think is one of the more powerful things that people can do. And um, so I wove a kind of answer in there. Um, but basically, to, I wove an additional answer, an additional kind of set of protocols. But this could be applied to anything. I do it with writing. I'll go, you know, I'll just go total focus, five minutes, and then I want to see how quickly I can bring myself into defocus and then refocus. And I think this is um, one of the problems with the phone. I love the cell phone. I'm from Silicon Valley, I live in Silicon Valley. But one of the problems is we are throwing away every opportunity. To, deli- to what I call deliberately decompress. So we've, people finish a set, they're snapping a selfie, they're looking at Instagram. I'm guilty of this too, by the way. I'm not, I, don't, I, I engage in these behaviors too. You finish a meeting or a podcast, you walk, you go immediately to your phone. And so what's happening is you're training, we have to think about what are we training our brain for? We're training our brain for constant, like looking for points of focus. And then we're, you hear people saying, "Yeah, I don't sleep well, or if I sleep, I don't sleep enough, or you know, I've kind of, I think I have ADD." And you know, some people might have ADD, but I'm thinking like, yeah, you might. You gave yourself ADD. Congratulations. You trained ADD. So I think that right now is a beautiful time and opportunity for people to start training themselves for learning how to toggle their focus and defocus regimes. We all have these mechanisms. And uh, anyway, that's that's the way I think about these things nowadays.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to try this for my workout because what I like again about this approach is that it's pragmatic and it's realistic. Because a lot of people that are very busy, that are very type A, that are very ambitious, just telling them like, well, just don't do your life's work that is gonna be busy and stressful and you're gonna have long hours. Like, just don't don't do it that way because it's not practical. No one's gonna do that. Like everyone's still gonna keep stressing themselves out. So figuring out a way to be able to kind of move in and out of these sympathetic and parasympathetic states, I think makes a lot of sense. And it also reminds me of something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is for nutrition side of things, this concept of metabolic flexibility, right? Instead of saying, all carbs are evil, never eat them again, or you should only eat this way or whatever. It's just having this resilience and this flexibility to adapt to whatever your situation is and be able to use whatever fuel you have and kind of move in and out of these things. I think that's really important. Um, And it's really important too, because I think you know what you said that my brain wanted to immediately sort of rebel against it, but then the more you talked, I was like, okay, I get it, is this idea of, okay, well, if you're stressed, if you're in a high stress kind of lifestyle all day, as long as you're getting deep, restorative quality sleep, you're probably okay. But the reality is most people aren't able to do that because they don't have that that flexibility yet. Most people who are stressed all day are not having a good night's sleep, right? But we can teach ourselves to do this.
1: Yeah. And I think a 10 minute um, deep relaxation practice, it's not just about the 10 minutes of deep relaxation you get during that practice. It's training your nervous system to be able to relax on demand when you need to sleep, because you know, it's very hard to control the mind with the mind. I can't just say sleep or don't stress. You have to use physiology in order to gain entry points to those states of mind. Yeah. One thing is, since you mentioned nutrition, and I'm guessing your audience is, is um, you know very interested in this, You know, there are states like intermittent fasting, which will enhance your ability to focus because you've got low levels of adrenaline in there, right? Now, if you're super hungry, your attention is going to shift to hunger. But one reason why, for instance, you know, like I'm a I'm a caffeine till noon kind of guy, like, and yeah. then caffeine and water till noon, and then um, and then I eat. But one reason why, like low carbohydrate diets or early in the day or intermittent fasting early in the day, they bring you focus, is because those carbohydrates naturally trigger the um, parasympathetic response. Having a full belly will do it too, though. So if you're, you know, people are eating, if they're on carnivore and they're eating, you know, two ribeyes, full belly is a trigger for the relaxation response. It's going to make you sleepy, right? That's actually one of the slower but more effective ways to calm yourself is to eat a lot of food just by volume. So I've created a, a system for myself, and this is just what I do, and I don't know what works for other people, but I'll just, you know, wake up. Eat, you know, drink caffeine, and I tend to get my workout in mid-morning, ideally, although sometimes early, do the bulk of my work, drink caffeine, focus, focus, and then I'll eat something, but I'll generally eat pretty low carbohydrate because I don't want to crash in the afternoon. But then as evening rolls around, I'm moving away from meat and vegetables, and I'm starting to do like oatmeals and rice and a little bit of protein and salads and things because I want the tryptophan release. I want the parasympathetic response that allows me to, to drift off into sleep and get really deep sleep. And this kind of runs counter to what a lot of people said, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, it was like, all your carbs have to be stacked early in the day. Don't eat too close to bedtime. Look, I pretty much fall asleep eating. Like, I love eating before sleep. I know that everyone says this is terrible. I sleep great. I also put, you know, supplements in there. I'm taking magnesium and theanine and doing all that kind of thing for myself, But because I believe in that. But I just think during the day, I'm trying to work, and at night, I'm trying to sleep. And so I'm going to generally try and get my nervous system in that regime. So a little bit of fasting, lower carbohydrate, caffeine early in the day, hydration. And then I actually pull back on hydration as I get back it yeah. toward night. And the reason is there's a, this isn't glamorous neuroscience, but it's accurate anyway. There's um, a nerve connection from the bladder to the brainstem that wakes you up. So when your bladder is full, just imagine when you really have to go to the back, when you really have to urinate, it's super stressful. You're like wide awake, you can't concentrate on anything else, right? You know, Especially as you get towards the door and you start putting your keys in the door. It's like, oh my God, it's amazing, right? And so, you know, I'm actually gonna pull back on hydration at night because I don't wanna wake up in the middle of the night just to use the bathroom. If I do, no big deal. But this is, you just gotta think about how we're toggling between parasympathetic and sympathetic states and the general things that we're doing. So, you know, I think for most people, just learning about this system and how to navigate the system can do tremendously positive things for themselves because you start thinking about your evening as a transition to a deeper state of sleep as opposed to like, oh gosh, I need to sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. So yeah, dim the lights. Start removing yourself from electronics. But look, you know, Netflix calms me down. I don't know. Maybe it's the mindlessness of most of the stuff that's on there. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, you know, I think we need to be rational about this stuff too. Yeah. And um, and the nutrition part, I think, can be really an important augment to it. And it sometimes requires that we depart from the like optimized situation of carbs only in the middle of the day or early in the day. Sometimes unless you know, your, your career depends on it, body composition might have to fall a little bit behind this stress sleep thing if you're going to keep this up over three decades, four decades, five decades. So anyway, I'm, I'm now I'm kind of um, editorializing here, but I think for a fitness-minded audience, they'll um, resonate with this, I hope, because um, you know we need to think about when we're doing what we're doing yeah. and how it fits into this general theme of high stress, low stress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate this, this line actually, because I think probably people who listen to this are tired of me talking about my sleep issues. Cause that's been like a really ongoing part of my uh, wellness journey for a long time. I was, I basically called myself insomniac for the longest time. And it's funny because during quarantine, I've, um, taken on a couple habits that are very similar, it seems like, to the way that you're kind of managing your day. And it's worked out really, really positively for me, um, incorporating this daily fast where I'm eating at around lunchtime, um, stacking kind of the food and carbs a little bit later in the day. Um, and, and I also really appreciate what you're saying too about the idea that it's great to have the mindset around it, but that the physiology still matters and for some of us it matters more because you can tell me like it's so important that you calm down at the end of the day and that's not gonna do anything to calm me down. That's gonna do the opposite, right? So having these like practical behavioral um practices that you can do every day that is is working on your mental state, but also it's it's the physiology that's changing, I think is really important for people who struggle um with down regulating and, and relaxing at the end of the day. I think that's a Really important uh, thing to to think about. Um, there's one other kind of big subject that I wanted to to squeeze in here because I want to be um, respectful of your time, and I know we could just sort of be here all day uh, talking. But there's one one of your studies that I really wanted to get into that you you posted about recently, talking about how certain positive emotions allow us to activate these neuromodulators. That trigger brain plasticity. So I know that this is a big subject, and so you don't have to get too kind of deep into the weeds. Um, but I think that again, sort of the the topic, the line that we've been talking about this entire time is this concept that this stuff. Um, has a physiological basis. Some of the stuff that sort of sounds woo-woo, like, hey, think positively and you'll be more positive. There's actual real kind of science behind this. Um, and so I'd love for you to talk about it. But I also the natural sort of pessimist in me would love for you to also talk about, is that not also true for, for negative emotions? Because we all know the sort of eors in our life where you know negative thinking begets negative thinking and it's like this this cycle. So is there any evidence that that thinking positively has a more effective Cycle the negative thoughts or no? Yeah,
1: so I'll answer the second question first. So, look, that basically you're born, you're raised, and that raising period from about birth to age 25, your nervous system is really um, getting customized for your experience, for better or for worse, right? And you know, I have real um, sympathy for you know when people have traumas or things that those get wired in. One trial learning. You know, it only takes one car accident, one bad event in life. You're not, you're not going to forget it. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's, that's the reality. You're not going to forget it. You can revise the emotional relationship to it. But Mother Nature really wanted to highlight certain events and make sure that we avoid them as much as possible in the future. We could talk about this phenomenon that um, the psychoanalyst called the repetition compulsion, whereas people continually throwing themselves back into the traumatic event. That was Freud had the idea that this was an attempt to try and resolve it over and over, but it seems a little bit like a, you know, no, no rational animal would do that. Right. My dog, well, he's a bulldog, so he's not really scared of anything, including skunks, but like, I'm trying to think like of things that he doesn't put himself, oh, well, he hates the vet. He hates going to the vet. So it only t- he's not like going to continue to go back to try and resolve it, but humans yeah. do that. But yeah. the idea here is, your brain is shaped on those early experiences for better or for worse. I always say the great thing about childhood is your brain is really plastic. The the sad thing is is that you don't control everything. Then as you become an adult, you control more of your brain, your activities. You make generally most people can control more of their life, but their brain isn't as plastic. But there are ways to access that, and we'll talk about that. So negative experiences throughout the entire lifespan, will always wire, rewire you quickly and easily. And that's unfortunate, but it's designed to keep you safe. Now, when we say negative experiences, we need to define that really clearly. The brain doesn't know negative experience versus positive experience. It only knows neurochemical states. And the interesting thing about adrenaline is that adrenaline Is kind of like a highlighter like hey things are different now than they were a moment ago hey let's change how the way the way you behave pupils dilate breathing fast heart rate let's change the way that you're going to behave so adrenaline spikes cue you and cue your brain to ways that you might need to change in order to avoid those adrenaline spikes and here i'm talking about very intense adrenaline spikes huge amplitude adrenaline spikes usually coupled with huge amplitude cortisol spikes. So not the kind of healthy variability in stress we were talking about before, but like, boom, boom. You know, we're talking trauma. We're talking really stressful days. We're talking bad stuff. Okay, so yep, that cue synapses in the brain to rewire and it it only requires one trial. However, we know that the adrenaline and noradrenaline associated Mm -hmm. with that is limiting in that if you are constantly in a regime of high stress there's a kind of a neural fatigue kind of your kind of a quit reflex it eventually is depleting it really depletes you this is why people who really do everything from a place of like revenge to anger and like i'm gonna prove myself yeah. for 10 20 years after about 15 years those are the same people who are like on transcendental meditation retreats you hope or sadly, often, you know, sometimes commit suicide or, or do violent acts. You know, these are like unhappy, unpleasant people because it was all plasticity from that grind, grind, grind. Now, that sometimes can be a stimulus for great growth in the other direction. The other direction is plasticity in response to positive emotions. So this is the really cool thing is you have these neuromodulators, as they're called, dopamine and serotonin in particular, that are released under very specific conditions that are every bit as powerful at controlling neuroplasticity they can open up neuroplasticity they highlight certain events for change and you say okay well what activates those well let's think about serotonin first there's so much talk about oxytocin out there i don't know why but like oxytocin is very slow it's not you know when you when i see my dog or if you you know or people like are with their partner or you might get a little bit of oxytocin release. The big oxytocin release is associated with the prolactin system. For the bodybuilding, fitness-minded people, you think about prolactin. What is prolactin oxytocin? tends to be kind of slowing down of goal-setting behavior, quiescence, calm. So that's kind of prolactin oxytocin. Serotonin is a neuromodulator that's released very often if we engage in gratitude-type practices. Now, for some people, this means sitting there and thinking about how blessed they are to have the ability to think they're blessed or the ability to breathe or the, the, the few things they have or the many things they have. For other people, a gratitude practice is already happening, but more subtly, where you eat a really good meal and just feels good. Or you go out dancing with friends or partying, or you have a meal where, or you connect with somebody you're like, it just feels good. Now, it feels good because Mother Nature is very smart she installed these mechanisms so that there were feel-good chemicals associated with certain types of events that are act as cohesion, as glue for humans to evolve. This isn't an accident, okay? And this doesn't depart from any religious leanings if people have them. Whether or not this came down from like God, the universe, and Mother Nature or whatever, like these are mechanisms. I'm open to all ideas. I'm just talking about the mechanisms we can measure. And I don't say that to be politically correct. I say that because Um, biology, none of the biology that I'm talking about is divorced from any other line of thinking that might lead to that biology. So we've got this feel-good thing and it cues us to do more of that. It highlights synapses in the brain like, oh, I want to do more of that. Then there's a reward system, which is the dopamine system, which is about goal-directed behavior for anything that's outside our immediate possession or experience. What I mean by that is You write down a goal, I'm going to win this competition. I'm going to get that degree. I'm going to raise this much money. I'm going to get into that school. And that you don't actually have the thing you need yet, the thing that you desire. So Mother Nature installed dopamine as a release system that says, go out and seek that. And what dopamine tends to do is it tends to put us not into states of calm, but states of kind of heightened activation. Now that heightened activation is able to push back on that norepinephrine a little bit and give you steam or gas or fuel, whatever you want to call it, that will allow you to extend your effort over long periods of time while feeling good. So that's somewhat technical, but here's the, here's the kind of key takeaway. If you're going to pursue things, you've got to figure out ways to dose that pursuit across the day and across the week and across the year and years with Gratitude, why? Because it recovers your ability to access that dopamine system. And, why, and with things like self reward, telling yourself, I'm heading in the right direction. Not, I've achieved my goal, but I'm forward action, agitation is good for me because that's me in pursuit of my goal. When you do that, a powerful thing happens is you're able to keep that noradrenaline level at bay. And so you don't feel that burnout and that grind, right? It, a couple ways to access this. So some practical ways to do it. One thing is a good example would be if you're really like really grinding and exhausted, and someone cracks a joke, or you laugh to yourself at how hilarious the situation is because it's so miserable. That's actually you'll feel better. All of a sudden, people feel better. That tells you it's not hormonal, it's not testosterone, it's not estrogen, it's not oxytocin. That is dopamine. Or you're working hard, you're working hard, and you're like, uh, and you you get a text from somebody, you connect with somebody, and you feel better. That's not oxytocin or prolactin. That's serotonin resetting you. It's the resetting these circuits that say to the nervous system, I'm safe. I have the resources I need. If I were to slip, I would have resources. I would have some support and it buffers you to be able to lean back into effort so what i'm describing here are things that people naturally do but by putting some mechanistic explanation to it you can start to see how like for instance the team that wins the super bowl i've always been intrigued by this both teams are going all out they're at max effort everything's on the line and the team that wins suddenly has the energy to jump in the air stay up for days and party that's dopamine it's like almost the equivalent of like what you see from like a cocaine or methamphetamine binge that somebody goes on. Now cocaine and methamphetamine are bad because they short circuit this process. And then pretty soon no other event will give the kind of dopamine release except that the drug will. So, so things like gratitude and connection are very useful to reset us things. And even that can be appreciation for a meal, it can be appreciation that you even have access to your pure body weight or weight workout you know it can be the fact that you're still alive whatever it is you know people think of gratitude as complacency but it's not gratitude is a reset button that allows you to lean into forward action and then forward action needs to be heavily dosed with gratitude compassion for some people but really it's more like gratitude um, self-reward, and people think self-reward means going, oh, you're doing a great job even though you're failing. That's not what it is. That's positive self-talk, and frankly, I think all of us know that that's a bit of a lie, right? What it is is, let's say I go and I have a terrible workout or I fail to get a certain amount of work done. I need to step back and say, I can't change that. That happened, but if I reflect on it by saying, you know what, I was at in effort when I did it. It was a struggle, but I was in effort. All of a sudden, you'll notice that the whole process isn't degrading, but it, um, your energy, but it resets your ability to lean back into effort. And again, these are ancient mechanisms that evolved for the specific purpose of animals and humans being able to pursue goals over time under conditions that were very trying. So, I think people should learn to toggle back and forth between this dopamine-serotonin system. And then I'll just mention because we talked about stress earlier in the immune system, there's a similar phenomenon where, and this was actually the graduate work of a guy named Duncan French at the University of Connecticut, who now actually runs the UFC Training Center, really Mm -hmm. interesting guy, has a PhD in physiology and some other things as well, very, very interesting, Um, showed that adrenaline and dopamine are linked to testosterone release in the short term. So if I get a spike in stress, people always think stress kills testosterone, you know, everyone's like, yeah, but only if it's tonically high for long periods of time. But stress and those kind of intense events, like competition, high effort, high stress, actually increases testosterone in the short term. So we've gotten away from this understanding. Here are the cocktails. The cocktail is noradrenaline, dopamine, testosterone, that kind of kit of effort, focus, go after it, get after it, get some let's hit this hard, just do it, pick your favorite saying. Mm -hmm. Then there's the rest and relax, serotonin, oxytocin, sort of quiescent, parasympathetic, relaxate, gratitude, those kinds of things. So you've got bins and you need to learn how to reach to one bin or the other in order to move through your life events. And so I think when you look at somebody or I talk to people who are burnt out, they've often been spending way too much time in this bin over here. And then these are the kinds of people, at least out here in Northern California, they're like hanging out down at Esalen, sitting in the baths. No, no just Esalen's beautiful, by the way. It's an amazing place. Um, so I'm not knocking on them, but it's very quiescent. It's very peaceful. You're not going to see anyone like hitting pads or like screaming primal. You might see people screaming primal screams, but this kind of thing. And they kind of go on like these retreats. They try and find themselves. Often they get into psychedelics, which I'm not even going to touch that topic, but that's, here's what we should be doing. If you want to be able to function, we should, first of all, I think we should be teaching our kids how to toggle back and forth between these states without any chemical support. Just learn how to focus, learn how to defocus, learn how to sleep, become a good sleeper. You'll be a successful adult if you learn how to do that. Learn that as a kid. And then as we progress into adulthood, taking whatever challenges we have and learning how to do this. And then we saw this during COVID and I was guilty of this too. It was like zoom, zoom, zooms all day. Not getting into optic flow and decompressing my mind, not thinking about what I do have at first. And then pretty soon everyone's like, oh my God, this is exhausting. Yeah. So then it's like, I need a vacation, right? Vacations are wonderful. We were talking about vacations before we started, you know, but I think I feel like I'm always getting vacation during the day because I can drop into these states that are you know, deeply parasympathetic and relaxing. So anyway, that was a very long-winded answer, but I tried to kind of um, pepper in descriptions of tools because everyone's life circumstances is different. Some people have kids and they're trying to sneak in a 12-minute workout. Some people, they're a fitness athlete and they're trying to do that. Other people are academics. And it's like, you have to tailor this stuff to your own life regime. That's,
0: yeah, yeah that's that, the idea. I'd like to take this moment to interrupt the incredibly informative, entertaining podcast that you're listening to right now to tell you a little bit about the show sponsors who are actually allowing me to have a podcast that can run and provide you with lots of entertainment. So bear with me for a hot minute while I tell you about these companies. This episode is sponsored by two companies. The first one is Paleo Magazine, which I'm sure you're already aware of. They are now an online resource used to be a print resource, now they are focusing primarily online uh, for everything related to the paleo lifestyle and ancestral health. That's food, that's exercise, that's research, that's sleep, that's stress, that's everything you can think of. Um, The digital subscriptions that they offer now give you access to hundreds and hundreds of delicious paleo recipes and hundreds and hundreds of high-quality curated articles, research, interviewing experts. And I know that those are good because I wrote a lot of them. So I know they're good, uh, and they're constantly going to be updating, uh, the content there so that you can get access to new information and new recipes and lots of good content and reading, and you can get full digital access to this online sort of portal um, with subscriptions as low as $1.25 a month. So they're basically giving it away. It seems kind of like a no brainer when you think about how expensive magazines are these days. So check out paleomagazine.com, go get yourself a digital subscription and look up everything uh, by Ashley Van Houten and see what I wrote and what I did, because that's all the good stuff. So that's the first sponsor. The second one, it's a fantastic company owned by an amazing person. The company's called Sweet Apricity, and they make paleo and AIP friendly. Sweets, mostly caramels. They have regular and CBD infused caramels. They have marshmallows. They have uh, these caramel lily puffs, kind of like caramel corn, but kind of tastier and lighter. They've got a caramel sauce. All of these things are made with a couple recognizable ingredients like honey and coconut sugar. They're not overly sweet, and this is coming from someone with a huge sweet tooth, so I can tell you they're. They're good. They're really, um, they don't, they aren't sticky. They don't have this kind of sugary, fake aftertaste that a lot of these fake, quote unquote, healthy treats do. Um, They just don't have the preservatives, these sort of weird, fake ingredients that often make people sick. And so that's why these are actually okay for people who have pretty strict um, dietary restrictions. So this company is amazing. Tanya, the founder, is awesome. She donated um, product for me for one of my events that I had, and we were um, kind of friends ever since. The products were such a big hit. It seems like a no-brainer that she could partner with me on this podcast, too, because I know some of you out there like sweets, too. You can pretend that you never eat junk food all you want, but look, I know the deal. So if you're going to eat sugar and you're going to eat treats, make them good quality, make them well-made with good ingredients that you can really enjoy it and not feel like junk afterwards. So head to sweetapricity.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and use the code muscle maven for a 15% discount on any of their treats. And if you try them out, let me know what you think. Uh, try not to eat everything that you order in one shot. Good luck. Uh, but the company's fantastic. Well worth trying out head to sweetapricity.com and get yourself some snacks. That is very helpful and it does go kind of full circle to the question that I was asking offline about, you know, uh, people who don't ever take the time or what I consider the time that you need to de-stress and so often these are people who are in positions of authority that are uh, leaders in this world saying how important it is to decompress and relax and take a vacation and secretly behind the scenes they're not doing anything of the sort and in some cases that is actually problematic and they haven't really figured out how to Relax. And in some cases, maybe they've just been able to tap into the system that you're talking about. Um, and I do think that this is important um, to highlight because for some of us, we do use dopamine as our basically cocaine addiction, right? Like, I, you know, a lot of us do that to a point that is that is unhealthy. It's great to be able to tap into this and have goals and go after them and have the energy and have the motivation and all that stuff. But when that's all we're doing and we're obsessively chasing it, and maybe we don't have that balance um, of that sort of more chill, serotonin kind of vibe that's that's going to be problematic um so is that and just kind of just to kind of close the loop a little bit that's sort of what you're saying about this kind of daily gratitude practice and this breath work and sort of these little like small ways throughout the day to kind of create that balance is that what you're doing to 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 level the dopamine serotonin a little bit asking for a friend because i definitely think i've got some imbalances as far as that goes okay
1: Absolutely, and you know, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, they talk about these like phenotypes, like uh, you know, Pitta and Kapha, like fire and water. I think there's some reality of that, you know. Like, I mean, I look at, and some of it's probably a little bit genetic, right? So, you know, um, like I didn't know Pakulski until recently, but he's very calm, even the cadence of his voice. You know, that's not me. Like, I come from like high intensity parents, and it's like go, 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 and I've had to learn how to be calmer right i mean the reason i got a bulldog and not another kind of dog is i wanted a parasympathetic dominant animal living in my home and it's awesome he's asleep right now I mean, he snores until 2 p.m and it's great that's why i want to get now a great when... day
0: in because they just exactly of... just so huge and sit there yeah mm-hmm.
1: you see this in dog breeds so actually i have a colleague who sort of um got very much into dog genetics and like you see this in dogs were selected not just for physical form but for temperament and there are exceptions but you know, a whippet behaves very differently than a bulldog. It's actually very relevant. I look at all people as different breeds of dogs, by the way, as I get to know them, and oh I can very and and it's not necessarily how they look. Sometimes there's a physical look, right? I mean, there are humans with like costello my bulldog he was born with a giant neck he's just got a giant neck he's just like you know and there are people like that they never lift a weight and you're like what happened big hands thick wrists Mm -hmm. so there probably are some genetic fingerprints to this stuff but i more look at it in terms of like spontaneous movement for instance if you look at a at a pit bull i happen to like pit bulls right they're well trained pit bulls their tail's always going and they have a lot of oscillatory activity in their nervous system it's they're they're set for action right Whereas a bulldog or a great Dane sits back on its nervous system. It doesn't feel like it needs to move until it's time for it to move. And then it's hundred percent action. I I fell in love with that phenotype of the bulldog because I think it's just a magnificent phenotype. Now some people like a dog that will go run with them in the Hills. Costello won't do that with me. He'll, he'll die. He's and he will try until he'll die, but that's kind of the phenotype. So I think everybody, maybe this is actually a good, you know, metaphor for all this. I think that everyone knows inside, doesn't matter how you look, I don't care how much muscle you have, how much, how lean you are, but everyone kind of knows where their ground state is and can sense that. And you see this a lot. Like if you're in conversation with some people, I have a friend, he's a neurosurgeon, phenomenal neurosurgeon, at UCSF. He is a very calm guy and he blinks very seldom and he moves quickly, but slowly too, you know, in that kind of like very, everything's deliberate. There's no spontaneous activity in his, in his nervous system and his job. And he are optimally matched for one another. His job is to go in and do work that's on the, on the spatial scale of fractions of millimeters and get it right. Every single time failures are not tolerated. And so people that have more spontaneous action in their nervous system are going to probably be better suited for certain things. Now, we can all do better or worse by learning how to shift ourselves in a particular direction. So if I'm really go, 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 I've noticed, for instance, that I tend to get locked into go mode. So I have to guard against that and learn to kind of quiet my nervous system if I'm going to sleep on a regular basis. So I like to, I think everyone should ask themselves, (laughs) didn't think we were going to go here, but you know, what What breed of dog am I? Right. Am I a bulldog? Like at my core, are my parents bulldogs or are they stressed out neurotic people? Now, maybe you've got one parent that's really stressed and one that's very calm. And oftentimes you see this in couples, they learn to, they kind of match for the nervous system state that they're trying to achieve. It's like one, sometimes they're both super high stress. Sometimes they're both very calm. You see this naturally. And you see it in the kind of ways that certain kids are comfortable playing by themselves. They're very deliberate. So find out which dog you are. And then every dog needs to, regardless of breed, needs to learn how to lean in and how to lean out of effort. Now, it's important. So is it good to be a hedonist sometimes to just really bask in pleasure of certain things, provided they're safe and constructive? You know, how to is it good to be really aggressive and go after things? Sure. One thing that that concerns me about the phone, people talk about dopamine hits and likes, and this I don't think it's dopamine at all. Mm -hmm. Dopamine you recognize as a real peak of like awesome. That might come through if you like really do something you're excited about and it goes public and you're getting a lot of positive feedback. What I think is happening is I think people are getting a lot of that serotonin. Through communication by text and through um, and through communication on Instagram, and just I, I mean I like going to social media from time to time because I see my friends I can you know I can communicate with my friends, I can see what they're up to and but the idea was it was supposed to reset us to lean back into life, and so you're supposed to put that away and get after it whatever you're after it happens to be mm-hmm. so I think that um, the theme today, obviously, it, I, you know, I didn't plan on going here, but is really about learning how to toggle back and forth between these high activation states, low activation states, training that. And as well, learning how to toggle between focusing on what you don't have so that you can pursue it and focusing on what you do have so that you can reset and pursue it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that this is the, you know, I don't claim to have any secrets to life, but I think that when I look at the whole of wellness and fitness and I look at the pain points that I see people experiencing, I think we could all do well by learning to ride this back and forth on a sometimes moment-to-moment basis and sometimes on a weekly basis. And we all have in us a tremendous capacity. And people, there's this kind of promise of capacity, like hidden in all these amazing stories that you can now find on the internet, which I enjoy, is this idea like, there's this other capacity. Like, I'm not accessing, I'm only accessing 10% of what I could do with my brain or 40% of my physical effort. Here's the deal, folks there is no little vault or reservoir that you're gonna crack open. You're not gonna get this massive pulse of dopamine and testosterone and suddenly be able to do those things. Uh uh-uh. uh. The, the, the hidden vault is this process that I'm referring to. That's what you see in high performing communities. This is what you see in athletes that have long productive careers. I work with some folks and know some folks in the tech community. One owns, I, I can't mention his name, but like the largest, te- you, you use his technology every day you know, and he has a practice every morning of doing specific patterns of breath work of walks without technology. He's learned how to drop deep into those states so that he can lean into what arguably is one of the more challenging career paths I've ever witnessed, Mm -hmm. because his plan is to do that for yet another 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. So the secret sauce or that like secret thing is the thing is the ability. It's a, it's a process. It's not like, there's no switch that flips, at least not for very long.
0: Yeah. I actually love that this is where the conversation went because I think that's something, like I said, on, on every level and in every aspect of health and wellness that I try to talk about being a generalist myself um, and somebody who I like to say that I know like a little bit about a lot of things instead of the opposite is that it just doesn't make sense to try and teach one way of being healthy or being calm or being strong or whatever because we're so bio-individual. There is certain physiological bases that are gonna m- make sense for a lot of people, but beyond that, we need to like figure out what works for us and do the research and do the hard work and ultimately be flexible and resilient, I think, in the face of anything that kinda comes at us. So I think that that's, a great way to kind of bring this full circle and and round it out here. And it's funny, you talk about Ben being like super chill talker because when when I came on and started co-hosting with him, that was something that I had to work on because he he brought me on to have sort of a different perspective and a different kind of personality there and someone who's a good enough talker that can kind of ask him questions. But after the first couple episodes, I was like, I need to figure something out because it's like, I'm on like fast forward, like talking like a chipmunk and he is just like, this super chill and it was very um it, it didn't work it didn't fit so like i have kind of brought him up a little bit where sometimes i'll tell a joke and he'll actually laugh at it and then but also i've managed to like kind of bring things down a little bit and be more calm so it's funny how you can you can certainly learn these things but you can also play off different people and situations and learn that way as well if you've got some some self-awareness so it's just it's interesting i still speak like a chipmunk on speed but like less so than i used to so you know,
1: we're all a work in progress. You know, right? Well, so it's interesting that, um, you know, I think for interpersonal communications and working with people, it's extremely important to know where we're at. So that whole thing of like, what's our breed of dog, like, you know, like what breed of dog am I? What's, um, I think it's really important for people to know where they're at and then have some range. You know, there's a very interesting literature I'll just mention, because it has to do with interpersonal relations. And, and now people hopefully have the understanding of the the ground rules for this, why this will make sense. So let's say that um, there are signals sent from the body to the brain, because there are, at a certain frequency. And when those signals are coming in at a great frequency, and my perception of the world outside me is going to seem slower. So I'm in line at the airport or the grocery store, and I'm feeling a lot of myself somatically. I'm feeling, think, like a morse code signal, the person in front of me is going to seem like they're moving slowly. When I'm calm, I'm getting fewer of those signals per unit time. And I'm going to be patient because the, the speed that things are moving outside me kind of matches my internal state, right? So when we encounter people that speak slowly or that are very deliberate, sometimes there's that feeling like Oh, there's this differential, like I don't, and it's, and there's actually a lot of human dynamics that has to do with who's going to drive it one way or the other. That's kind of a separate, more psychological topic. Mm -hmm. But one reason why it's good to be able to bring our state down a little bit is we can relate to people better. We can, we can suffer impatience less often. One reason why I love New York city is I'm a pretty high activation guy. The speed of New York city matches my internal speed a lot better than my, I hate, I hate Napa. I, I hate Napa. People are like, let's go up to the winery Napa." First of all, I don't drink. But second of all, it's like hanging around all day. Nothing moves. It's like these rows of trees. And I want to get out of there as fast as I can. And so I've learned how to tolerate a trip to Napa, but like put me in an urban environment. And I'm like, yes. And so I think that learning to map our internal states to some external things is kind of useful. And I think we naturally can start to see and realize why we like certain environments and not others. Some people like loud, fast music. Some people like slower music. It's a lot of this has to do with internal cadence. And, um, I had the, you know, the, the great fortune of spending a couple of days with Ben out in LA and talking with him we got to train together, which was a humbling experience, um, uh, for me. But, um, I, you know, he, I think I'll, I'll go on record. I'm not just saying this cause we both know him, but I'll go on record that I think the single best advice I've received in the year 2020 was from, Ben and he said, you know, the more attention, he was talking about himself. He said, the more attention that I can bring to an activity, whether or not it's eating or breathing or exercising or listening, the greater depth of, of kind of appreciation and kind of sense of, of control, like internal control that I have. And so I've really been trying to implement that. I think it's such a powerful statement. Yeah. And it's not about going and meditating, although I know he's a pro- big proponent of that practice as well but it's about how much attention can we bring to what we're doing and set aside to some extent that second voice that has us wanting to attend to all the other things that are always gonna be incoming. So, I don't know, uh, thank you, Ben, for, for cueing me to that. It's, it's so, when you hear it, it's so obvious, but I think a lot of people are distracted by their own internal states. And so I guess today we're talking about how to learn to modulate those so that you can lean into life better. And that doesn't mean always being calm. There mean there is a time to really be aggressive and fast and to engage and maybe even to be in conflict, provided you know, it's healthy conflict. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where I'm looking at things these days from the perspective of the nervous system.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I, I love too that we're always trying to find this balance between awareness and being able to modulate our our feelings and our reactions while still kind of again, I think like you said, honoring. Really, who we are and what we're about. Like, nobody has to love vacations in Napa. You know what I mean? You don't have to love that if you're a more like high, you know, upregulated person. And I, when you're talking about New York, like you're speaking my language, that's sort of my second home. And I remember I moved there from Bermuda. I was living in Bermuda for a few years after university. That's where my mother is from. And so I spent a few years working and living in Bermuda, which if you haven't been, you got to go. It's fantastically beautiful. But it was like two extremes. It was like living this beautiful, tiny island life and then moving to, you know, what I thought was the center of the universe. And I realized living in both places what really got me going. Like as beautiful as Bermuda is, that I was, I felt like trapped and bored and restless. And then I moved to New York and people told me, you know, people walk really fast on the sidewalks there. And I got there and I'm like pushing people out of the way. Like they weren't fast enough for me. So it's like finding, finding this balance, being able to relate to other people, being able to connect with other people, but like knowing who you are and and being able to work with it, I think is very uh, important. So. um,
1: They've mapped walking speeds in different cities. And it's very clear that people in certain cities Talk faster, walk faster. Look, my bulldog Costello is never going to be a whippet, right? He's never going to have that. His nervous system is tilted, parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and as a, and perhaps not as a surprise, I mean, he also, like, you know, he's 90 pounds solid and he always has been and he's fixed. So I can't even imagine what it'd be like if he actually had so it's so own testosterone, false, so yeah. mm-hmm. you know you see yeah you see you see the phenotypes right and then you see people who are wiry and kind of um and high stress you know and and it is what it is it's also the beauty of of you know the human animal that we have this variation it probably explains some not all but it probably explains some of our evolution to the place that we are where people in societies occupy different roles and it's all good it's just that where people have pain points, or they're suffering, or they want to, um, you know, they want to be in pursuit a bit more, or they need to learn how to relax a bit more. That's where some of this stuff hopefully can come in useful.
0: Mm-hmm. So you and I are going to talk offline about what kind of dogs Ben and I are. But until then, <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. You've given me a lot to think about, as always, and I just appreciate so much your willingness to share this with all of us through stuff like this and, and through social media it's really invaluable so um i'll have to have you back again to talk about the whole vision side because that's another thing but um but for now thank you so much for taking the time it's been awesome
1: oh you're you're most welcome and um uh, i'll just i'll go on record by saying that um ben remember it's not about physical shape <laughs>
0: okay but okay.
1: when i when i when i'm met ben and spent some time with him i left that uh, and i actually wrote down in my notebook because i have a little notebook of everyone's dog breed um <laughs> and um i wrote back so he's a rhodesian Ridgeback. oh like
0: and that. of course they're like the coolest most like majestic dogs ever of course he's not he's gonna even, even kind, of the, he's kind of he's kind of
1: yeah no he's they're they're an interesting dog because they were actually they they were designed to keep lions out of territories i think in,
0: in so South. badass um, yeah.
1: But they, they have a certain visual focus ability to them, like just the way they engage. Um, and I was like, he's the Rhodesian Ridgeback. So, of
0: course he is. Okay, yeah, so I spent,
1: I spent far too much time, um, uh, studying dog breeds. And, um, but for this reason, I just, you know, there's a resonance there.
0: It is very cool. And now I'm totally going to do that too. I'm totally going to look at everybody and be like, what dog are you? Cause it's just, it's interesting. It's just a whole different way of looking at people. It's, Anyway. All right. Okay. We'll talk about my dog breed offline in case it's not cute.
1: <laughs> the, I have to spend time with somebody in person, <laughs> in, person in order to, to yeah. be able to know what it is. And then it just comes to me. I can't really like look for it. But, yeah. And sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it's immediate. but um,
0: Whatever yeah. the fidgetiest dog is, that's probably me. But we'll, we'll, when we can get together in person, you'll tell me.
1: All right. Fair enough. All
0: right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. All right. That's it guys. I'm sure your brain has, uh, plenty to do with all of that. Um, but do yourself a favor and follow, uh, Andrew Huberman on Instagram at Huberman lab. And we'll put all of this stuff in the show notes. So if you, uh, need to go there to get it, you can do that. The real question is what kind of dog do you think you are and why? it's an interesting exercise, right? I think it's hilarious. I'd love to hear what kind of dog you think you are. Um, I still got to figure out mine, but I, I gotta say, like, I would love to say that I'm like a beautiful Husky or something like that, but you know, it's probably one of those small hyperactive dogs that like acts like it's a bigger dog. I feel like that's, that's kind of on brand for me, but anyway. Thank you to everyone for listening and supporting the show however you can. It means a lot. Your messages and DMs and reviews really make my day. Uh, thank you to my friends at Bubs for stocking me up on collagen and MCT. As always, you can take advantage of my discount at bubsnaturals.com if you use the code muscle maven. And my other lovely show sponsor, Sweet Apricity, because even health nerds like us need a treat every now and then. Life is too short, but we don't want to eat garbage that makes us feel like garbage. And, you know, I've told you before, I'm a chocolate girl, but this company's caramels and marshmallows kind of changed my mind. Uh, they're made with honey and coconut and uh, just all recognizable ingredients and not that many. It's kind of surprising how good they taste for just how simple the ingredients are. And you can also use the code muscle maven there at sweetopercity.com. So that's it. Join me next week. Thank you as always. Have an awesome day and, uh, I'll see you later.